You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. What we have in hand here is the account of Nicodemus's visit to Jesus. It's fraught with significance, and there's very much to be learned from the account itself, even the small details of it. But the first thing we'd note is the man's name is, is interesting to us because it's a Greek name. And maybe this is the occasion to dispel the misconception that some people have that Judaism at the time of Jesus was a really strictly closed society with no contact with the outside world, not having any and not desiring any. More or less that would be describing to a degree the Pharisees, but that wasn't all of Judaism. There was a good bit of interest in and association with other people. And, well, names such as Philip indicate that, which is a Greek name, and Nicodemus, also a Greek name, Nac Diamond in Greek, meaning that his people would have had some contact with Greek culture and admired it, and to the extent that they named their child Nac Diamond. Now, note also that this is not a fringe instance. Nicodemus was a member of the High Council the Sanhedrin, so he's a person of some standing, yet with this, I'd almost say this Greek coloration about him. Well, that's the first thing that I'd speak about. Next, say something about his profession. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, at times, people are confused about how things went in Israel at that time. How was it governed? The Romans, we were aware of that, fully had come and take over this part of the world. But then here's talk about the high priest. He had something to say. And then, of course, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and Herod holding sway in another part of the Holy Land. Where we stand in all of this? Perhaps we could bring some clarity to the matter by saying this, that Roman rule was very, very flexible, very mild, we might almost say, when the Romans came in, they were not for just jamming things down people's throats, you know, well, this is the way we're going to do it from now on. More or less what they would do is to find out what people were used to, a form of government that they practiced, and go along with it to the extent that they could. Actually, when the Romans came, they made very few demands upon the conquered peoples. The famous French historian Michelet put it this way, that the Romans were given to Renier Doucement, to rule, rule softly, so to say. What they would expect is that the conquered people would now not enter into any military pacts with any other outside group. And that made sense. They might line up with a nation that was at war with Rome. That, that would be ridiculous. So that was ruled out. Secondly, the Romans required that they have the right, or at least stated their right, to collect taxes. And that wasn't so terribly unreasonable when one thinks of it. 
because with the coming of the Romans came all sorts of improvements in the quality of life in any particular area. The Romans were the ones who had devised these networks of roads that made possible, you know, increased business opportunities. There were roads to carry your produce to the cities for sale there. It's all the better for you, the merchant. So that and other amenities of life, the Romans would build these aqueducts to bring fresh water to areas that were dry. So the taxes were well spent, by and large. And the third requirement that the Romans made was that they have the right of life or death, the right of capital punishment. In other words, that no lower court could condemn a man to death. They could pass judgment on him, but the Romans would have to review the case and see whether they judged that the person was worthy of death. They did this to protect themselves and to protect their friends, because it would be easy enough if, having taken over a realm, then the population would systematically get rid of all these people who were cooperating with Rome by killing them off. So to prevent that from happening very wisely, the Romans had this discretion that they would decide who had to be put to death or not. But beyond that, life went on as usual. And if the place did become Romanized, it was only because people recognized that the Romans had the better way of doing this particular thing, and so it made sense to adopt it. So then that would be the situation in Palestine at that time. When the Romans came, they asked you know, how the people were ruled, and the answer they got was, well, we live by the rule of God. We have a theocracy. God rules. And, so to speak, the mouthpiece for God is the Sanhedrin, which was a council of 70 members composed of a certain number of priests, certain outstanding men in the community, wealthier individuals, and presided over by the high priest. And it was pretty much a, a governing body that included the executive, the judicial, and the legislative, all three combined. And now, you see, Nicodemus is a member of that group. So he's a very prestigious individual. Well, we're told that he comes in to Jesus at night. Now, your first impulse is to think he's sneaking in not to be seen, and that definitely is a factor here, because by this time, later on in the career of Jesus, the lines were drawn, and the government, the Sanhedrin, was on one side, and Jesus was on the other. He was the enemy. So it was not judicious, not wise, for anybody connected with government to be seen consorting with Jesus, because that's dealing with the enemy. Hence, Nicodemus comes in at night. Now, there's this to be said that he's not that strong in his acceptance of Jesus that he's throwing caution to the winds and saying, well, come hell or high water, I'm going. I don't care who likes it or not or what the consequences are. He's not that convinced of Jesus. Later on, however, it appears that he does move squarely into the community of faith or, to put another way, fully accepting Jesus. Because you recall in the account of the burial of Jesus, he has a part to play in that. He and Joseph of Arimathea throwing caution to the winds there, not caring what people think that he has so clearly identified himself as a disciple of Jesus at that point. There's also another point 
in the gospel where his voice is heard saying something that if you didn't know the, this background of his interest in Jesus, you might think, so what, that doesn't indicate much. But it does show that he is, as it were, attempting to slow things down, the opposition growing against Jesus, to soften things a bit. So pretty much what you're seeing happening in this man's life is going from, you know, a tentative faith in Jesus to full faith in him. Well, we have more to say about night. That's significant that he should come at night because night traditionally among the Jews was the time for studying the Torah, the law. When you stop to think about that, there's a certain appropriateness to that. At night there is that quiet, sometimes that eerie quiet. Even the small noises that one hears during the day, all that dies down and you have the near absolute quiet that you would want for high-powered concentration. So that's the time to focus on the law, the most precious gift that God has given to his people, the law, the Torah. You can't overstudy it. You can't overdo that. And you study it under the best of circumstances, night. Not that that was the only time they studied it, but it was thought a very appropriate time to study here is Nicodemus coming to consult Jesus about these very matters of the law. So it's quite suitable that he should choose this time of day to come night when this is the time dedicated to the study of the law. In that community of Jews of strict observance that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have an indication that you had people studying the law right through the day, 24 hours. You know, so that there'd be a certain number deputed to be busy about studying throughout the daylight hours, but a certain number that would be studying through the night. So all that would be background to this visit of Nicodemus to Jesus. There's one very interesting thing that has to be noted. The way this gospel, the subtlety here is really beautiful. Listen to the way it puts this. This man went to Jesus one night. He's coming from the darkness outside into Jesus, the light of the world. What is very interesting is later on in the gospel, it's speaking about Judas who leaves Jesus. At the Last Supper, he leaves Jesus and goes into the darkness outside. And the gospel makes a point of that that he got up from the table and left. And then it says, it was night. So fascinating, really. Here is one man coming from the darkness outside, namely Nicodemus, to the light of the world, who was Jesus. Later on, there is Judas, who is leaving Jesus, the light of the world, to go out into the darkness outside. It's very pointed when you stop to think about it. He starts out in a, we would say, flattering way that is appropriate in the Near East. You compliment the person that you've come to visit. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can show the signs that you do unless God is with him. Then Jesus answered him, I tell you, unless a man is born over again from above, he can never see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb 
over again and be born. Well, now, here's something very interesting that you want to note about this gospel that frequently, maybe I, this is the way to put it, people ask dumb questions. And we ought to be grateful to them for having asked these dumb questions because then that sort of pressures Jesus into clarifying a situation which perhaps up until that time, not only the man in the story but ourselves may have been in the dark about. But because of this man's obtusiveness that he misses the point, calling for further elucidation from Jesus, we are cleared up on the matter as well. And so that's pretty much the situation we find ourselves in here. Nicodemus's strange question, how can a man be born again? Well, first of all, we want to make a comment about the way it's put here. I tell you, unless a man is born, now there's a Greek word that's used here that cannot be put into English because if you go to the dictionary and look up this word, anothen, you're going to find one meaning is again, another meaning is from above. Which of these do you choose? It's interesting, in the different translations of the New Testament that you can find, you will find scholars lining up on each side of the line. Some saying, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter it. Another translation of unless a man is born from above, he cannot enter. So they all make their decision. And then you have a fence straddler, such as my translator, who uses both expressions. And I think that's as it should be, because that word anothen means just that. Born again through baptism, and from above. This is not a birth of the flesh, not a birth coming from a woman's womb to create another human body. No, but a birth in the spirit. So that the picture that emerges from this is that, in a sense, the Christian leads his life on two planes, a natural and a supernatural one. The natural plane is the existence that he enters upon when issuing from his mother's womb, a physical existence. But the supernatural level of life that he leads, that's from above, that is the doing of God the result of grace coming from baptism that puts this person alive on another plane of existence. But that's part of the richness, or at least to suggest the wealth of truth that is in the reply that Jesus makes. Unless a man is born again from above, he can never see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again? Can he enter his mother's womb? Jesus answered, I tell you, if a man does not owe his birth to water and the spirit, he cannot get into the kingdom of God. Whatever owes its birth to the physical is physical. Whatever owes its birth to the spirit is spiritual. Well, the point there is very strong. This life of the spirit, this life on the second plane of existence, is such that nobody can attain to it by their own efforts. There's no amount of trying, you know, that puts you on that level. It's much like, you know, let us say, an oak tree. An acorn can only develop into an oak tree. It can never develop into a dog or anything else, any other category of life, a human being. And there's no amount of trying that will bring that about. See, if this is an acorn that you have here, the only thing that can grow from it is an oak tree, period. So it is then with a human being. This is a human being 
and all it can ever be and all it can ever grow up to be is a human being, nothing spiritual. It's that birth from above that happens in baptism that gives the person the double life that you might speak of, a life of the body and a life of the spirit that can only happen by God's doing from above. Do not wonder at my telling you that you must be born over again from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. That is the way with everyone who owes his birth to the Spirit. Well, now the wind blows wherever it pleases. This is to speak about the mystery of God's action. You can't gauge it. You can't predict it. God is totally independent, and unless he tells you what he is going to do or proposes to do, you will never know it. It's as mysterious as the wind. You can't dope it out. You know the wind is blowing, but you can't even hear it, much less see it. You hear its effect. It's rustling through the leaves. You see it because it's turning the branches upside down, but you're not seeing the wind and you're not hearing the wind, and yet it's there. And where does it come from? In those days, they had no idea. I think in these days, when you listen to weathermen, you realize they still don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, and what it's going to do. But that's the fact. There is the mystery of the wind that suggests the action of the Holy Spirit of God. It cannot be programmed, cannot be diagrammed, cannot be fathomed, just like the wind. Very real, very true, very actual, but not predictable. Well, that's the way it is then with God's action, and that's how one gets to live this second life, this birth from above. It's mysterious. I might point this out, that the words in Greek, there's a play on words here that can't come out in English. And it has to do with uh, wind. The word for wind in Greek is also the word for spirit. See, pneuma means wind and means spirit. And the word for sound is also the word for voice. So you see, though it's speaking of sound and wind, it's also speaking of voice and spirit. So it's a very, very adroit expression of this whole matter that the Holy Spirit of God is like the wind. Nicodemus said to him, how can that be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet ignorant of this? I tell you, we know what we are talking about. We have seen the things we testify to, yet you all reject our testimony. Here, Nicodemus is made to be the stand-in for his whole class, Pharisees and others about town, the religious leaders, have closed themselves off from the message that Jesus bears. If you will not believe the earthly things that I have told you, how can you believe the heavenly things I have to tell? All right? Now, and just as Moses in the desert lifted the serpent up in the air, the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. 
Now, here Jesus is broaching the matter of his crucifixion. He will be lifted up in the air on the cross, just as Moses lifted the brazen serpent on a pole. If you remember that incident, it was during the Exodus, and there was a plague of serpents, and people were being bitten and poisoned and dying from it. And the salvation was to be this, by God's directive, Moses was to put a brazen serpent on a pole, and people bitten by these serpents would need only to look at that serpent, that copper serpent, and in that way would be saved. Now, of course, there was nothing miraculous about that serpent on the pole. It was just that act of obedience to God that saved them. God could have said anybody that raises his hand three times in the air will be spared this problem. And God, you might say, arbitrarily chose that as the action that one would do to petition God and to express one's submission to God and thereby be saved. So, so much for the incident of the brazen serpent. It, of course, then always puts people in mind of the crucifixion because there is a different matter. There, it's not a question of being spared, being bitten by serpents, but a question of salvation for the whole human race. See, so that sort of small-scale salvation that took place surrounding the brazen serpent is the background to and suggestive of the large-scale universal salvation that results from Jesus on the cross. So... That's where we would conclude with the Nicodemus story. Chapter 4. So when the Lord learned that the Pharisees had been told that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, though it was not Jesus himself who baptized them but his disciples, he left Judea and went back again to Galilee. Now he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's spring was there. So Jesus, tired with his journey, sat down just as he was by the spring. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the town to buy some food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that a Jew like you asks a Samaritan woman like me for a drink? for Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew what God has to give, and who it is that said to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, You have nothing to draw water with, sir, and the well is deep. Where can you get your living water? Are you a greater man than our forefather Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? with his sons and his flocks? Jesus answered, Anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But anyone who drinks this water that I will give him will never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become a spring of water within him, bubbling up for eternal life. The woman said to him, Give me this water, sir, so that I may never be thirsty, nor have to come all this way to draw water. He said to her, Go and call your husband and come back. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the man you are now living with 
is not your husband. What you say is true. The woman said to him, I see that you are a prophet, sir. Our forefathers worshipped God on this mountain. And yet you Jews say that the place where people must worship God is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor at Jerusalem. You worship something you know nothing about. We know what we worship, for salvation comes from the Jews. But a time is coming. It is already here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and sincerity, for the Father wants such worshipers. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I who am talking to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Yet no one of them asked him what he wanted or why he was talking with her. So the woman left her pitcher and went back to the town and said to the people, Come, here is a man who has told me everything I ever did. Do you suppose he is the Messiah? In advance of detailed study of this, let me just say this. I told you earlier that you had in this section of the gospel this phenomenon of people coming up against Jesus, getting to know him, and gradually having their understanding of him expand, expand greatly. This is a classic instance of this. She meets Jesus as just another Jewish person, period, but she ends up this encounter actually entertaining the possibility that he is the Messiah. That is some progression, to be sure. And during this dialogue, you can see her understanding heighten. Even the use of the word sir, it starts out as, well, a respectful enough address for some person that you suspect is a person of some attainment, But then the second time around, it seems charged with even more significance and still more the third time. So that's what the author is strongly suggesting to us at this point in the gospel, this increase in awareness of the meaning of Christ. But it may not be far-fetched to suggest that what the author of the gospel is hoping for, even anticipating, is that the reader of his gospel will have that same experience. That starting with a bare general awareness of Christ will ever be growing in his appreciation and comprehension of Christ. That this is a lifelong pursuit to be finding out more about Christ today than one knew yesterday and looking forward to tomorrow of knowing still more than one knows right today. I think that's the big lesson to be derived from this particular account. Well, the first thing I want to comment on is a point of grammar. And it says here that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And actually, geographically, he did not have to pass through Samaria. 
So what could this mean? What could this be? It's not an error, let me assure you right from the start. Normally, the way Jews went north and south was this. Palestine, roughly an oblong shape, and Judea is in the south, Galilee is in the north, and Samaria is in the middle. Now, Jews coming north-south or south-north would have regularly done this, gone east to the Jordan River Valley, and then go north. And then, if you're going to Nazareth, then go west again to Nazareth. Or in the other direction, go east from Nazareth to the Jordan Valley, go south, and then go west to Jerusalem. Now, here Jesus is down in the Jordan Valley already. So what he would normally have done, what Jews normally did, was to go straight north up this valley and then go west to Galilee. But it said, no, he had to pass through Samaria. That is known as the divine passive. And what we mean by that is this. It's a device used in syntax in Hebrew, just in Hebrew thinking, that to avoid saying God wills, that you do this or that, it'll say you have to do this or that. But understanding the reason you have to is because God wills it. It's part of that very commendable high respect for God and the restricted use of God's name that the Jews make to this present day. If you converse with Orthodox Jews, at times in any case, you'll be at a loss now because the person has just said, well, he wants it. And you're thinking, now, who's he whom we've been talking about? And that's a reference to God rather than, say, God. It is a carryover from the Jewish practice going back to very ancient times of avoiding the mention of God's name out of respect, to be sure. So a Jew today would most certainly never speak of Yahweh and in those days didn't either. And here's an upshot of that whole thinking of saying he had to pass through Samaria, meaning God willed that he pass through Samaria, and there the scene is set. Now, it says here that it was by the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. In this region, Jacob is frequently spoken of, in Genesis particularly. You see, at that time, at Jacob's time, God's people were semi-nomadic. They moved from place to place, not with great frequency the way the nomads do. They might move weekly. No, these people would come for some time, a couple of months, a year maybe or so, and then move on again. And that was the life situation at the time of Jacob. And at one point, they had more or less dug in in this area of Samaria. But that would explain, by the way, the bad feeling between Samaritans and Jews explained why the Jews normally made the detour that I described earlier, going up the Jordan Valley so as to avoid going through Samaria because they were very, very unfriendly to Jews. And this hostility was returned in spades by the Jews, so they were really at odds with one another. Nonetheless, Jesus makes his way through Samaria as you know, unfriendly as, in fact, it was to all Jews. All right, so Jacob's name is associated with this area to this day. Right at this place, there is Mount Gerizim, where it is reported in the Old Testament that Jacob sacrificed to God. Well, there is this well here. I've spoke about it at the very beginning of the course. 
a well about a hundred feet deep, first mentioned by Christian pilgrims in the fourth century, in the 300s. People were going to the Holy Land, were encouraged to go to the Holy Land, early Christians were, to experience the place where Jesus had lived. And there is an account from somebody going in the 300s, going to the Holy Land and visiting this well. So Jesus, tired with his journey, sat down, just as he was, by the well. That is really an inaccurate translation, by. It shouldn't be by. The Greek word, the Greek preposition that is used in this sentence is not by the well, but on the well. But you see, the translator thinking, well, how can you sit on the well? Mostly because he had an American impression of wells, you know, with a pail and a winch, and maybe trimmed with the rambling roses and so on. But no, a well in that part of the world is simply a hole in the ground with fresh water in it. And what one did as a regular procedure was to pull a stone over the opening of a well so that animals wouldn't fall into the well and pollute it, or so the children might not slip into the well and drown. So they pushed this sometimes rather heavy stone across the mouth of the well to keep anything and anyone from falling into it. And that's then where Jesus sat on this stone right there. So the correct translation would be he sat on the well rather than sat by the well. Noon, as it was about noon, this situation raises some questions at the time. And the question that's raised is that the woman has come to draw water at this time. This was most unusual, as a matter of fact. People are very custom-bound in the Near East to this day And they would come to the well, women would. It was the job for women. They would come only twice a day, at daybreak and then at late afternoon, in consideration mostly of two things. One, the household needs would be greatest at those times, but also the heat of the day. If one were going to walk a good distance to the nearby well, you wouldn't want to do it at high noon when the sun is scorching. So those were the two times, and they were very tradition-bound and regularly would have come only at those times. But here, it was noon, and Jesus is seated by the well. And why would this woman be coming for water at this time? So some people have thought perhaps the time was calculated in some other way than we have normally thought. The Roman way of calculating time was something like this. Night began at six in the evening, Then there were four watches through the night, just dividing the night into four segments, and then 6 a.m. would be the start of daybreak. That would be the first hour. See, noon would be the sixth. So the sixth hour would be noon. So some people have thought, no, maybe this was at daybreak. They use a different calculation of time, and Jesus is there at the well at daybreak when the woman would have come for water. But then what remains to be explained is how Jesus would have been tired from the journey. He would hardly have been traveling through the night. So we settle for it being noon. With this possible explanation of why this woman is coming at this unusual time to draw water, and it would be this that we find out 
subsequently that she has a rather mixed up marital situation, having married five times. And very possibly people have gossiped about this. That was a great thing to do, apparently, at the wells. Women would meet and trade gossip. And to avoid all of that, she comes to the well at an off time, which would be 12 noon. It's also noted that it's at 12 noon in this gospel when Jesus is dying on the cross. There was this very beautiful hymn that used to be sung at Requiem Masses all through the years, the Dies Irae, that pictured our Lord sitting tired at the well and then going on to redeeming us, having experienced the sufferings of the cross. Very beautifully put. But connecting these two incidents, you might almost say these two happenings, Jesus seated at the well at noon and Jesus dying to redeem us at noon. Well, this coming to draw water might be thought of as an experience similar to going to the mall these days, kind of a a social happening. There was always exchange of news and gossip in those times. It's worth getting a sense of that by looking at Genesis 24, 11, for one. Toward evening, at the time that women came out to draw water, he made the camels kneel by the well outside the city. See, toward evening, that's when the women came, as I mentioned earlier. You know, sometimes people go to the Near East to see this very scene. That's pictured many times in art, showing a woman with a veiled face carrying on one shoulder a beautiful urn, you know, really an artistic piece. All that gets shattered when you see the reality of it. In this day and age, women still come to the well to draw water, but no artistic urn, but a Pennzoil can to fill with water. So here's an instance out of the story of the Old Testament of this man waiting at the well. He's out there to choose a wife for his master. So he's there waiting by the well, at this hour of the day, and he makes this prayer. O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, pray, give me success today, and so be gracious to my master Abraham. Here I am taking my stand beside the spring as the daughters of the townsmen come out to draw water. Let the girl then, to whom I say, will you please let down your pitcher for me to drink, and who says, drink, and let me water your camels as well, let her be the one whom thou hast allotted to thy servant Isaac. See, Abraham has sent his servant to get a wife for his son Isaac and to get a wife from the people that he, Abraham, derived from in the east. Then Genesis 29:2. Looking around, he saw a well, this is Jacob, in the open with three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for it was from this well that the flocks were watered But the stone over the mouth of the well was so large that it was only after all the shepherds had collected there that they could roll the stone off the mouth of the well and water the sheep, after which they would replace the stone over the mouth of the well. By the way, you get some sense of the size of the stone involved in covering the well. Then we look at Exodus 2.15. When Pharaoh heard about the matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and sat down beside a well. 
Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters who came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them off. So Moses went to their rescue and watered their flock. Okay, so a typical incident, you know, a characteristic instance in any case, of what went on at the well. You might say the social significance of wells in those days. We're coming to the conclusion of our time and would have to pretty much leave it at this point. The next thing I would have commented on at some length would have been the animosity between Jews and Samaritans, which is the background against which this whole thing happens. How unusual that Jesus should be speaking to a Samaritan woman. It would be most unusual even to be speaking to a Samaritan man because of the strong feelings that existed in both groups, one against the other. That has continued almost to modern times. And the source of irritation in all of this, well, it's a combination of circumstances, but one difference of opinion is that the Samaritans continue to believe, they continue to worship in this one place, the top of Mount Gerizim, because Jacob had worshipped God there, and their thought is, you can't top this. If it was good enough for Jacob, it should be good enough for us. But subsequently, in Jewish history, the Jews worshipped rather at the temple in Jerusalem. And this the Samaritans resented. They thought this was out of order. It should be Gerizim. Well, that's one thing that poisoned the atmosphere. But another was that the Samaritans were a kind of a half-breed group that they had resulted from a mixture of races, Jews and Babylonians, who had been moved when the Babylonians had carried off the Jews to Babylon, they had brought some of their own people back to the Holy Land and they intermarried. And the resultant race was a Samaritan and the resultant religion was different from Judaism. And the Jews resented that, that they should have taken liberty with the genuinity, the authenticity of the faith. That's where we're going to have to leave it all. But that concludes what we have to offer on the Gospel of John. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.